this is John Goldthorpe, your host for In Dialogue with Nature, our podcast of readings, conversations, and talks that deepen our understanding and experience of an ever-growing conscious, caring relationship with nature and one another. We're going to try something a bit different, in that what you are about to hear is intended as part one of a three-part series based on Craig Holbridge's essay, Where Does an Animal End? The American Bison which first appeared in our bi-monthly publication, In Context, and later, in a slightly edited version in Craig's book, Seeing the Animal Whole and Why It Matters. Craig Holridge is the co-founder of the Nature Institute, a whole organism biologist, and educator. In this series, we are going to use Craig's portrayal of the bison to explore and demonstrate what it means to see an animal whole. In the process, you may recognize that we are encouraging you to expand your idea of what it means to think ecologically. Each of the three parts will consist of Craig first reading a section of his essay, followed by my conversation with him about its key points. Here is Craig Holridge reading from his essay. On a hike in the Hyden Valley of Yellowstone National Park, my wife, Henrika, and I could see in the distance a few bison grazing, As we came closer, we noticed that they were bulls. They were very close to our trail. We figured it was not wise to walk between them, so we made a wide arc around them on the sagebrush-covered hillside. It didn't seem that they paid much or any attention to us. We continued on our way, and they continued grazing. On such an occasion, I have a clear and distinct awareness of where the bison are and where they end. They are over there, and I am over here. I can judge the distance between us. I don't question where the bison ends. It ends at the boundary of its massive body, and that body is over there. This knowledge of a physical boundary gives me a certain feeling of security. I can adjust my distance to the animal accordingly. As true and as important as this may be, it is certainly not the whole story. When I am observing a group of bison cows and their calves, and one of the calves looks up and gazes at me, where does that calf end? Where do I end? The I that is attending to the calf trotting behind its mother. When the calf sees me, she is with me. When I perceive a bison's dark, glistening eye, a young bull rolling in the dirt, releasing a cloud of dust, or a bison swimming across a river with only its head above the water, I am with the bison. I am here, and I am there. The bison extend into me, and I into them. We intermingle. So while the knowledge of an animal's physical boundary and of my own physical boundary, is essential in my navigating through the world, it is also a limited perspective. I have in mind only the spatial aspect of the animal and myself. But when we perceive one another and respond to one another, we are in those moments not separate. We extend beyond our physical boundaries. It is no longer a simple matter to say where an animal ends. And that is what I want to explore. An individual bison is easy to recognize as such. Whether a large old bull, a young calf, a ruminating cow, or a spiked horn yearling, each has its own distinct boundary and moves as a unitary creature without fusing with its environment in such a way that it would become indistinguishable from it. That only happens when the animal dies its body decays, and it becomes part of the soil. Of course, this distinct physical form with all its bulk does not exist on its own. Every bison needed parents to reproduce and a mother in whose body it developed. A bison fetus developing in its mother's womb is still wholly connected with her and part of her. At birth, the calf becomes a separate body and a center of independent activity. But even then, this separateness is only partial. It feeds on its mother's milk and, after weaning, on grass. 
This separate being will always need the sun, the air, the water, the grass, the solid earth to move on, other bison, and more in order to exist. Without these, it would not be. But it is also the case that these conditions for its existence do not explain the bison. What I mean is, they do not make understandable its impressive size, its unique shape, or its manifold habits. Every bison is a specific center of activity, even though this center could never exist on its own. It needs a periphery from which it draws and to which it gives, a periphery that it incorporates, transforms, and excretes in order to remain itself until it dies. Before I venture into building up a picture of this manifold periphery that supports the center, or perhaps I could say a picture of the peripheral bison, I want to consider the unique physical presence that every bison embodies as it wanders over the grasslands. The bison is the largest of all terrestrial mammals in North America. Mature bulls can weigh over 2,000 pounds and stand six feet high at the shoulders. Cows are considerably smaller, weighing only up to 1,100 pounds and standing four to five feet high at the shoulders. A striking feature of the bison's form is its massive front half that contrasts starkly with its relatively slender hindquarters. The bison carries its head low to the ground and long and shaggy fur covers the head. The pointed beard, which can nearly touch the ground when the bison stands and walks, emphasizes the downward orientation of the head. The shaggy fur extends over the shoulders and the upper part of the front legs, and then ends abruptly. This fur is much longer than on the rump. During the winter, the fur is more uniform as the hair grows longer and thicker in the rear half of the animal, but the contrast between front and rear is still apparent. Bison are quite comfortable in cold climates. The bison's emphasis is forward and down. It has short legs, a short thick neck, and holds its head below shoulder height. From the wide, low-held head, the neck rises into the hump above the shoulder. This hump is not, as it is in a camel, a cushion of mainly fat tissue. It consists of the long processes of the rib-carrying vertebrae. The heavy, low-held head is supported by strong muscles that are connected to those long processes. No other hooved mammal has such long processes or carries its head so low to the ground. It is not surprising that when two bulls spar, they butt with lowered heads, nearly touching the ground. The bison radiates concentrated force. When an adult walks, you witness the gravity of every step coming to earth. But for all its bulk, a bison can run fast and leap when needed. When watching a group of bison gallop down a slope, you behold an immense forward thrusting energy barreling through the landscape. An animal's senses mediate its perceptions of its own body and also allow it to expand beyond its physical boundary. The sense of touch is spread over the entire body and gives the animal both a perception of this boundary and an awareness of other solid objects that it comes into direct contact with. Bison love to roll and rub their bodies on bare ground, creating momentary dust clouds as well as lasting depression in the ground, called wallows. I'll talk about them later. Bison seek contact with other solid objects to rub against, such as trees and bushes or rocks. Trees on the edge of the grasslands are often girdled, bark-free, from rubbing bison. When telegraph poles were being erected through the prairies in the 19th century, they were occasionally toppled over by rubbing bison. And at least one settler reported that his cabin was pushed over by a group of vigorously rubbing bison. We get a glimpse into an imposing, compactly constituted animal that seeks resistance and contact with the solid features of its world.
With its head held so low to the ground as it walks along, a bison's face is in tactile content with the plants it feeds on. In this sea of plants, it orients through its keen sense of smell, discerning the qualities of the plants before it imbibes them and then tasting them as they are briefly chewed and swallowed. It seems that a bison can extend a mile or two outward through its senses, just as the bellowing of a bull in the rutting season can be heard from such distances. Bison detect scents that waft their way from great distances, a fact well known to scientists and hunters who want to get close to a herd without disturbing it. And they have learned through experience to approach a herd from the downwind side. It is easy for us to think of a herd as a collection of individuals. But if you take the perspective of any individual bison, then its existence is clearly bound up with that of the herd. Through their senses of touch, smell, hearing, and vision, the members of a herd weave into one another. A cow identifies her calves in the first days mainly by smell. Then she recognizes it visually and finally by its calls. Grunts and bellows resound and carry manifold meanings for members of the herd. A bull smells the urine and rear end of females, which can then tell him whether she is in heat or not. The tail is a highly expressive organ, and through vision, bison participate in the ebbs and flows of dispositions and moods that show themselves through the tail, as well as through the movements of the body and the head. The herd is not an add-on to the individual bison's life. You can't understand the life of any individual without considering it as a member of the herd. Being part of the herd does not mean having a specific role or function. Rather, the animals live in a landscape of shifting relations that at times intensify and at times loosen. An old bull, for example, may spend a good part of the year by himself, but in the breeding season, July and August, he will usually return to a herd and interact with other bulls, often vehemently, and mate or try to mate with cows. Watching the northern Yellowstone Park herd along the Lamar River in June, you can form one picture of this extended organism of the herd. Over a thousand animals spread out and move around through the valley. Each day you view a different scene and different groupings. At this time of year, virtually every cow is given birth to a calf that stays close to its mother throughout the day. It lies near its mother, and when she feeds and moves along, the calf soon follows. Perhaps 20 to 40 cows with calves and yearling females and males often form a cluster that grazes, ruminates, and moves around together. But such groupings are not stable or fixed. Some of the cows and calves may swim across the swift current of the Lamar River and begin mingling with other cows and calves, while the remaining animals stay behind and become part of some other fluctuating cluster. During early summer, you rarely see bulls among cows. The bulls form separate bull groups or wander about singly, especially if they are older bulls. You often see three to seven bulls, younger and older, grazing together and moving across the landscape together. Often the bulls spread out from each other and then move closer together, when they are close, younger bulls will often headbutt and wrangle, only to spread out again and give themselves over to grazing. One time I saw a lone, older bull approach a bull group. When he was among the others, he moved very slowly and raised his tail into an arc. A bull from the group started grumbling. It was a tense atmosphere. As the saying goes, the air was so thick you could almost cut it. The older bull stomped with his forefeet, dug repeatedly at the dirt, lowered his head, swishing it forcefully back and forth against a sagebrush bush. Soon the bull group moved along and the bull was alone again. From the other direction, three bulls trotted down the hillside and walked toward the lone bull. In this meeting, there was no palpable tension. No grumbling, no snorting, no stomping or head shaking. 
the lone bull turned around, joined the three bulls as they moved east in the direction of the other bull group. For a while, at least, the lone bull was part of a group. These few vignettes show that the herd is neither an agglomeration of individual animals nor a group with fixed roles and functions. It is a continually shifting relational dynamic. At times, dense and focused soul spaces are created, if I may put it this way. When a calf suckles, when a cow crosses the river to meet her calf that had been running back and forth along the bank to find her, when a bull enters a group of other bulls. At other times, the tension and attention among the herd members loosens as they give themselves over more to grazing or ruminating, turning toward the plant world that sustains their lives. The relational life of the animals contracts and expands during the day and the year. In 1800, Millions and probably tens of millions of bison lived on the mid-continental grasslands. Their range extended from Mexico in the south up into Canada and from the Rocky Mountains to Indiana. Bison were virtually exterminated by 1890, when only around a thousand animals were still alive in all of North America. Into the 1870s, bison still formed immense herds throughout their range. Colonel R.I. Dodge writes, for example, about traveling a distance of 35 miles in Kansas in May of 1871, when, he writes, at least 25 miles of this distance was through one immense herd. The whole country appeared one mass of buffalo, moving slowly northward. And it was only when actually among them that it can be ascertained that the apparently solid mass was an agglomeration of innumerable small herds of from 50 to 200 animals, separated from the surrounding herds by greater or less space, but still separated. Bison herds moved in relation to the seasons and to food availability, wandering hundreds of miles in any given year. When bison move through the prairie, they are moving through a sea of their food. A bison doesn't stop to snip off the tips of plants, but moves with its snout near to the ground level, tears off the shoots close to the soil, chews briefly, salivates copiously, and swallows. The grass enters a small chamber of the stomach called the rumen. This muscular chamber massages the grass by rhythmical muscle contractions, and it grows and develops through this interaction. Over time, the rumen becomes the largest chamber of the stomach, thanks to its continuous engagement with grass. In the rumen, the grass is churned around and swallowed saliva, and balls of food, what we call the cud, are formed that are then regurgitated and chewed thoroughly before swallowing a process called rumination. We, human beings, ruminate on thoughts and feelings. Bison ruminate on the prairie they have internalized, which eventually becomes part of their body. It is no simple matter to live from grass. Grass plants are remarkably tough structurally. It is no small feat of nature to create exceedingly thin, upright, stable, yet resilient stems and leaves, like those of grasses. The fibrous cell walls even incorporate silica in the form of opal as a structuring element. In a way, it is paradoxical that bison and many other large grazing mammals live from grass, which is both hard to digest and, from the perspective of carnivores, poor in nutrients. A large animal like a bison must take in very large amounts of grass to live. As a bison feeds on grass, it is not only ingesting grasses and some other types of plants, it is also taking in microbes, such as bacteria and protozoans, fungi, and these live on plants in the upper layers of the soil and on other animals. So when a calf licks its mother, 
or its mother licks the calf's lips, the calf is also ingesting microbes. Conversely, when a bison is feeding on grasses, it is leaving behind microbes in its saliva on the grasses. So there is an abundant sharing of microbes between animals, plants, and the soil. Without this sharing, a bison could never digest grass. In the dark, warm, fluid environment of the rumen, microbes find ideal living conditions. Their food is grass and each other. Many microbes can form enzymes that break down cellulose into other carbohydrates, starch and sugars, and they can utilize them for their own growth. In turn, the microbes release fatty acids into the rumen that the bison can use for its own growth. Some of the microbes move into the other chambers of the stomach, and in the fourth chamber, the final chamber, they are themselves digested and provide a vital source of protein for the animal. As a bison grows and feeds, it develops a microbiome within the organ of the rumen, which itself develops in interaction with the grasses and microbes. So the bison gathers microbes from the surroundings, including other bison, and the microbes rapidly become an integral part of the animal, without which it could not live. The internal microbial ecosystem develops into an organ of the bison. While a prairie consists mainly of a variety of grass species, there is also a great variety of wildflowers that are, however, not so great in number. Because bison feed preferentially on grasses, they leave many wildflowers, which are also called forbs, ungrazed. Areas that have been grazed by bison have greater plant diversity, and the plant community is more varied than in ungrazed areas. All this assumes, of course, that the bison are free to roam and are not forced to overgraze due to confinement. When a bison has grazed on a grass plant, the plant responds by increasing its growth. Young shoots are more nutritious than older ones, and researchers have observed that bison tend to return after a time to the already grazed areas to feed on the fresh young grass. In such patches, more forbs grow than elsewhere. Eventually, the grass growth diminishes and the bison move on and feed elsewhere. When there are more wildflowers, more insects and other invertebrates thrive, and they are also present in greater diversity. They are, for example, important pollinators, and they are connected in myriad ways with plants and other animal life. As naturalist John Muir famously remarked, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. When the bison ingests and digests grasses and microorganisms, it builds up and maintains itself. In this process, it produces substances that it gives back to the prairie, its urine and dung. These stimulate plant growth. Since they are provided in a localized and concentrated form, they contribute to the diversity and patchwork nature of plant distribution in the prairie. For example, Plants growing in a urine patch have higher nitrogen content and are sought out by bison, which graze the patch intensely. Such intensive grazing of a small area inhibits grass growth and at the same time allows forbs to thrive. White settlers traveling through the prairies in the 1800s noticed that the trails of bison herds stood out from the surrounding prairie through their bright greenness. The defecating and urinating bison left a trail of nutrients, and the manure was continually being ground up and mixed with the soil through the bison's hooves. In the spring, the plants found ideal conditions for lush green growth. One feature of giving back to the prairie that we might not think of is an animal carcass. When a bison dies, its body decays, and if not scattered and eaten by scavengers, it becomes, over time, part of the soil. This soil is nutrient-rich and harbors vibrant plant life. Bison bring variety into the prairie in yet another way. 
they wallow. They scrape away plants with their hooves and create an area of bare soil in which they roll around. This area can be three to five meters in diameter, and gradually the wallow becomes an oval, bowl-like depression that can be a foot deep at the center. A prairie that is home to a herd of bison is pocketed with many such wallows. The same wallow may be used by many different animals for long periods of time. But bison also make new ones. Early settlers coming onto the prairie remarked on the countless wallows, some of which can still be observed as depressions with the unique composition of plant species in prairie preserves that have had no bison activity for 125 years. That's a lasting impression. A wallow contains compacted soil and holds rainwater better than the surrounding prairie. Aquatic plants can populate such oases, and wallows can even serve as breeding pools for frogs. By contrast, during longer dry periods, only drought-resistant species germinate and develop in the bare, compacted soil of a wallow. All in all, wallows make unique microenvironments that contribute to the overall patchiness and diversity of prairie life. When bison shed their fur, it can find its way into the nests of birds and small mammals. And as bison make their way through the prairie, seeds get caught in their fur. They become walking seed bearers. One study found, for example, 76 different plant species in 111 hair samples from different bison. That's dedicated research, by the way. At some point, the seeds may become dislodged, fall to the ground, and germinate. Bison also ingest seeds along with leaves and shoots and often pass these through the digestive tract without being broken down. In both these ways, the bison spreads seeds, one more contribution that it makes to the prairie that sustains it. All these detailed observations help us to appreciate how the bison and its environment support each other, affect each other, intertwine with each other. The ecological bison spreads out way beyond its physical boundary. And while neither the bison, nor grass plants, nor microorganisms are composite creatures in the sense of being put together out of external raw materials, each of these centers of activities is unthinkable by itself and necessarily it intermingles with and in part merges with others. Craig, it's so great to talk with you about your essay. I've enjoyed it since it came out. I enjoyed reading it in your book. And now I get a chance to talk with you about it in some detail. And I would like to first ask, because I don't actually know the answer to this question, how is it that you came to bison? Yeah, I've studied a number of different animals during the course of my you know, adult life. And... I've always had this appreciation of bison and also the tragedy of their near eradication at the end of the 19th century. And I just felt it would be a good thing for me to concern myself more in detail with these animals and really spend some time with them in the West, which is where I grew up, and really honor this animal through a study, a whole organism study, like I had done with many before that. And that this is, in a way, this iconic North American mammal that has, through human doings, suffered immensely and almost been eradicated. And I want to somehow let it show itself through a whole organism study. You said to honor the bison. I have to say, by the time I got done with this essay, and it is a rather long one in many sections, I had such a full picture that I felt, I hadn't used that word honor, but when I now think of the bison, I hold it very differently. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting 
about this approach in that I have, as our listeners will have, from having heard you read the essay, all these images of the bisons and different aspects of its life. And one of the things that I find most disturbing and compelling is right there in the introduction. I'm just going to read two sentences from your introduction and then let's talk about it, yeah? Two sentences go like this. When I perceive a bison's dark, glistening eye, a young bull rolling in the dirt, releasing a cloud of dust, or a bison swimming across a river with only its head above water, I am with those bison. I am here and I am there. The bison extend into me and I into them. We intermingle. Craig, you know, this is... This is a radical statement. And the essay begins there. As we talk about the essay, it will become clear what we mean by these things. But just to start off so that the reader holds it, if this is truly accepted, it seems to me the world changes. My experience of the world changes and my understanding of the world changes. That I, as an individual, physically, describably distinct being, intermingle with other physically distinct beings. Yeah. Before I wrote those sentences in the essay, I start by, of course, making the point that we do experience ourselves in one sense as discrete entities and many other discrete entities in the world. And that if I see a bison a quarter of a mile away, I can say it's over there as a physical entity. And yet, at the same time, in order to describe the bison, to name it as a bison, in the sense of a knower, I have to have been with it. I can't talk about anything that I have not participated in in some way or another. And so when I'm saying we intermingle, then I'm going beyond, I'm taking another point of view from the purely spatial point of view, which is the one we normally think of when we think of bodies. His is here and that's there, which is all fine and good, but it's a limited perspective because we cannot know of anything else in the world that's beyond us without having actually gotten beyond ourselves to have participated with it. So one way, an an immensely simple (laughs) thing to realize that, of course, in order to say that the tree over there is green, I had to have been with the green. I can still say it's over there, but I have to have been with it. Otherwise, I would have never perceived it had I not participated with it. So this is where I'm going when I ask in the title of the essay, Where Does an Animal End?, is to look at the different qualities of this interaction or this intermingling, different layers of that, that show themselves in the study of any living being. But even with a rock, if I see its color, if I'm talking about color, if I'm talking about touch, Texture, then I have to have touched it. I have to, I have to have brought my body in contact with its body to speak about its texture. But with its color, or what it sounds like when the rock is rolling down the hill, well, where where was my attention? My attention was in the hillside with the rock rolling down the hill. I was there with my attention, with my sense perception. And that's being with the thing in order to be able to describe it. You described color when you said the green of the tree, and then you started with color on the rock. But as you said, it's rolling, it's hardness, it's sound. All these sense-perceptible qualities are what you're describing as your way of becoming familiar with. And so to become familiar with the bison in the essay, you start out with a physical description of the bison, the massive creature that it is. In that text, you describe different aspects quite specifically. The fact that it's bigger up front and slender in its hindquarters, its beard 
going to the ground, almost dragging on the ground. All these aspects that, as they're sensual, sensible qualities that I can relate to, I can picture them. And that's what I find myself doing as you write. Is that key to your, not only your writing, but to your way of making sense and relating to whomever the other is in any given case? Yeah, I really want to ground everything that I describe as much as I can in my experience or in the experience of others who have related to bison in ways that I haven't. So I take many other people's work into account when I'm giving such a portrayal. And so I call it a portrayal in the sense that I want through then the words that I'm bringing on the paper that I'm speaking for the reader or the listener to themselves be able to conjure up some kind of a picture. And of course, most people have some sense of a bison that when I start talking about it, well, they, oh, you mean the, Ameri- the buffalo? And I said, yes, it's the American buffalo, I mean. And so people will have a picture already in some form. And then I can make that more differentiated, more distinct. I can highlight it. Things that one notices, this very interesting compared to cattle, that this very massive weightiness in the front with the head so low down to the ground, emphasized by the very thick and massive fur in the front half of the body, where the back half looks really small and almost insignificant light, where you have the heaviness in the front so that you begin to build up a picture that's qualitative, that it's not just about it weighed so and so much, it's this long and in more abstract terms, but it's something that one can relate to in one's own imagination. I think it's key the way you just said it, qualitative. And when you give the qualities, that's, in a way, those are the facts for the imagination that it uses to build up, somewhat mysteriously, a picture And as you said, actually you didn't say it. I want to say that when I'm reading your your words, there is great specificity and two things happen for me at once. I get the specificity of a bison, but kind of in the background implicit, but what I can immediately bring to the foreground in my attention is, well, it's like a cow and it's not a cow. There are similar qualities. These big animals that are ruminants So I'm learning the specificity of it by your description. Yeah, the specificity of something always comes more into focus when you contrast it with something else, something that's fairly close to it, like a cow, something that's a bit further away from it, a different ruminant like a deer or something, much lighter, thin legs. You begin to get a sense of, ah, yeah, this is some of the unique qualities of this particular species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we're saying unique, I realize my experience after having read the essay a couple times now and hearing you read it, there is a sense of intimacy I have with the bison, though I haven't seen an actual bison in person for at least 10 years. I feel like I know the bison better, and I think it's true that I do, not a particular bison, but bisonness I know much better. And there is a sense of intimacy with that. I'm just noting it because it's still, I don't know what the word is, strange, but it's it's there. Yeah. And I think you'd notice if you went to Yellowstone Park or one of the big preserves with bison, your experience of the bison would be quite different. I've had this, that I've studied certain animals that I only knew from zoo visits and then read lots of literature. So I had built up a real picture, but then experiencing them in the wild was like, oh my God. This is so rich. Something meets you because you, in a sense, are prepared to let aspects of the creature appear that otherwise you wouldn't notice. Little things become important or significant that otherwise you would overlook. Such a portrayal can never give you what the animal in its presence can give you, 
but you might not sense its presence to such a degree unless you have inwardly yourself built up some kind of a picture. In my own work, it always goes back and forth. It's like a process of enhancement, intensification over time. And we've been talking about your writing and your sensing of the qualities that you experience with the bison. And now let's spend a little bit talking about what the bison, as a bison, senses in its environment. With the bison, this wonderful example of them sensing their own bodies is the fact that they wallow. The prairie grasses and plants, they dig a little bit free, and then they roll into it and roll back and forth and back and forth and create these depressions in the prairie that are called wallows. This rolling in and back and forth, they're experiencing their own body in the rubbing with the earth. And they also rub against trees and they'll actually take the bark off of trees. They rub against each other. So this is this tactile contact rubbing and movement where they're sensing themselves and you get a sense that that's important for their well-being, right? to have these sensory bodily experiences. And so that's very much where you have this connection to the immediate physical environment that is for them important. You can say the same thing about their tongues when they're ripping off the grass and then swallowing it, tasting. These senses are very much of the direct contact with the world that they're living in and moving through. So that's the one aspect. The other aspect is this going beyond those boundaries. What does it mean when a cow swims across the river and her calf doesn't follow. And both the cow, the mother, and the calf are kind of running back and forth, bellowing. They're at a distance and yet they are connected, but they want a closer connection. And then the mother swims back over and the calf is now no longer making sounds. So you have, in such a situation, you have through the sense of sight, through the sense of hearing, the animals connect with each other at what we would call physical distance. And the bison being herd animals, the um, amount of connectedness through the way they move, through what the tail movement or the way a bull holds its tail when it's around other bulls. That says a lot. Maybe not to me, but it does to the other bulls. So they are going beyond their physical boundaries and thereby creating, in this case, you could say the herd dynamics are coming into being through their movements, through their grunts, through the way they move, all these things, through the needs that they have, the mother cow finding her calf, the calf finding her mother through smell, through sound, and through sight over time. So all of these things are where the animal is not a prisoner of a self-contained body. It, of course, extends beyond that. That's clear. And I just want to emphasize when you gave the example of the tail being in a particular shape and that meaning something to another bison. When we do that with one another, I wave my hand to you. I'm gesturing. Yeah. And that waving of the hand, that gesturing has a meaning to you. Getting from this, one way to speak about that tail is the bisons, just like we do, find gestures meaningful. They, they're different gestures than ours, but they find gestures meaningful. And in that way, they're clearly extended beyond. Yeah, that's completely it. And it's, it's context dependent on a particular situation. What the meaning of a tail, the way the tail's held in one situation it could be held in the same way in two different situations and mean something different. So this is clearly the realm that we're very familiar with in reading gestures and knowing their meaning immediately in the context. 
And when you're observing bison, you begin to see that. I saw it mostly in these interactions of bulls amongst each other. But then there's something more when you go into the herd. So mother and calf, we can kind of relate to that. But I think it becomes harder for us to relate to their herd life. We know crowds, but I don't know that we know herds. So let's talk about the herd life, because the herd, as you write it, is also an extension of the individual, and the individual doesn't end at its physical boundary. It doesn't end as a bison with its individual self, in a way. Yeah, what a herd is, is in in many ways still a big question. Where I observed the largest herds was in this Lamar Valley in Northern Yellowstone National Park. You can see a thousand animals at one time spread out over this very large valley. And yet within that, they're not all just one creature moving as a swarm or something. When we were observing over a week or so, you can see there are these groupings at this time of year when I was there, which was in the calving season, where you have the cows together with the newborns and then maybe the yearling females in groupings 20, 30, 40, maybe. And then those groupings shift. They don't stay the same even during the day. But there's always this being in a herd. If one or two or three start moving to move across the river, the others start kind of flowing along. Observe domestic cattle a lot in their herd behavior. And you just see it. It's like, And you don't know where this starts, and it's not so, oh, he's the leader of the pack, or she's the leader of the pack. None of that. I mean, there are differences between the the different animals, the individuals, and it is a dynamic in which they're woven into, but it's not, there's not a strict hierarchy, there's not, yeah, I think it's much more dynamic than we often think of when you think in, with wolves, the alpha males, and all of this stuff where we categorize I think we need to watch out with that, actually, because even in my, I could say from one point of view, very short period of time of doing intensive observations, I could see an older bull in one case comes into a group of younger bulls and there's a kind of a big disturbance. And you would say, oh, yeah, I mean, he's clearly being respected by the others. Another time walks through, nothing happens. There's no growling, there's no grumbling, there's no pulling back, running away. I was just impressed by the dynamic nature of it and its fluctuations. Craig, you have this line that kind of gets to where I want to go next. The herd is not an add-on to individual bison life. You can't understand the life of any individual without considering it as a herd member. And the concept here is, as you said, herd is a very fuzzy concept, and yet it's a meaningful concept in that when we make this distinction and we see behavior of the individual in relation to the herd, the herd is a meaningful term. Yeah, yeah, clearly. One of the other ways that the essay goes back and forth with working with this shift from individual to more than the individual that the individual is in relation to is the individual as center in relation to a periphery. In this case, the periphery we're talking about is a herd. Earlier, we talked about the periphery as its physical environment, making a wallow, right? Right. But we're constantly in our perceiving, noticing this movement between individual and what we're calling the periphery, the context in which it finds itself that it's giving its attention to. But also in our thinking, it seems that we have to move back and forth between center and periphery, to be actually true to the life of whomever we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. You could say when you have the season of mating, then you have physiological changes happening in the bison that's coming, you could say, from the inside, although it's related to the seasons, so it's also in relation to the world, but there's something that arises, and then the behavior changes. The bulls become more aggressive with each other. The bulls seek out the females. Mating happens. So you always have this interplay where you can look at something more from the centered perspective, and that center 
perspective, something might arise up in it as a new kind of drive at a particular moment in time. So earlier in the year, you have the relatedness, and then you have a new type of behavior that arises at a particular time of year. And that behavior has its consequences, for example, that then there are calves in June. And then the whole behavior of the mother changes. The bulls tend to wander off into their own groups, etc., etc. So, yeah, always the weaving. I'd like you to read a paragraph and then we'll talk about it because you introduced a new term there and I want to talk about the term. So on page 12, the last paragraph, the one that starts with these few vignettes. These few vignettes show that the herd is neither an agglomeration of individual animals nor a group with fixed roles and functions. It is a continually shifting relational dynamic. At times, dense and focused soul spaces are created, if I may put it this way, when a calf suckles, when a cow crosses the river to meet her calf that had been running back and forth along the bank to find her, when a bull enters a group of other bulls. And at other times, the tension and attention among herd members loosens as they give themselves over more to grazing or ruminating, turning toward the plant world that sustains their lives. The relational life of the animals contracts and expands during the day and the year. Hmm. Much of what you read alludes to what we already discussed. Where I want to hear you speak a little more, as you say, if I may put it this way, soul spaces are created. So what do you mean by soul spaces, especially in the distinction we can see how they make physical spaces through their wallowing, but you're not talking just about that, I don't think. No, no. I could also say, because the word space can be problematic and that one always thinks of it physically as a distance from here to there, but in the sense of it's the behavioral dynamics. That would be a drier way of putting the same thing that wouldn't maybe get some hackles up. I kind of like the word soul space just because it leads you to picture these beings of attention and intention, intentionality and attention, that you can't describe an animal like a bison without noticing its attentiveness and its intentions, not in saying, oh, I'm planning to do this, but in the sense of its embodying like a gesture, like we said, with the tail or a grunt is something's coming to expression. So this is a world of interactions of a reality that is meaningful for this particular species. And we can, to a degree, participate in it, always a little bit from the outside. I mean, except for when you get too close to some bulls and you get a little bit close and they start digging and with their hoof or their forepaw and they're digging. And then they start grunting. You know that has a meaning. And the meaning for me is, Craig, start moving away. Right, So we can relate to that too. We can see that, that there's something in this creature that is not comfortable about, in this case, this being, this human being, being so close. So that's a kind of a space where the physical distance is still there, at least for the moment, until it starts running towards you. Before that, it's a gestural, behavioral, dynamic space. To have that, you're dealing with creatures who have attention and desires, and they have a formed inner world that is expressing itself in all the relations it has to the others now of the species. If I'm just talking about the interactions between the bison themselves, that soul space is then another nuance of it. If a pack of wolves suddenly appears, that's a new expansion in that moment of the behavioral space of the animals, and then new kinds of behavior arise, protective behavior, fleeing behavior, that weren't there until the wolves appear. So these are all very normal things that we know about animals, and I'm just trying to characterize it as its own quality of, of a way of relating of these beings with each other and with their environment.
what you're saying is they sense qualities in their environments, just like we see the green of the tree. We don't know what color they see on the tree, but they sense something about the tree. It has qualities for them. Everything is mediated by these qualities that are sensed and a response is given, but we've said it's not a fixed response. Yeah, yeah. And it's not fixed, but yet it is specific to bison, although there could be very similar things, for example, in other large ruminating mammals. There is always this element of limitation, of limits, of boundedness, boundedness in the sense of not everything's possible. When a wolf comes, it's not going to climb up the next tree. It's not possible. And they don't sit there thinking, well, you know, gosh, maybe I could climb this tree. They do what's appropriate to their way of being, which goes down into their morphology and anatomy and details of their physiology. It's through and through bison. To continue with the distinction, in what we've talked about already, we talked about the physicality and, as you said, the morphology of the bison. And therefore, we have some more specific sense of the kind of life it can live. And this allows our imagination to enter its soul space with some confidence because there's some things it just can't possibly do. Like you're never going to see the bison climb a tree, as you said. And we're confident of this based on its morphology. It's not possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> leave, leave a tiny little bit open. Craig, now we've got the bison as an individual, the bison as a herd animal, but now we have the bison in terms of its existence as being an animal of the prairie. And that life of grasses and forbs, mostly, and grasses being what it eats, where it gets its nutrition. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think of these animals before they were almost eradicated, the thousands and millions of them in this central, more prairie part of North America, from Canada down into Mexico, and that they're living in the food that sustains them, the grasses. Every time an animal grazes on grass, it stimulates the growth of grass. So they're in this dependent relationship But they're also in the relation of supporting new growth of the plant that they're feeding off of. Their urine and their dung serve as fertilizer for the grasses. So they are in an inner relation to the world they live in that is not one-sided. We often think of these things in a kind of one-sided way. Poor grass getting taken by all these grazing animals. And think of all the grazing animals in Africa. Graze away the savanna. But at the same time, these plants in the grass family have this remarkable ability to grow rapidly after they've been grazed on. So you have that interaction. Then you have the fact that the bison alone cannot live from grass, which brings us to the whole topic of its microbiome that it needs in its rumen to digest the grasses. And where do all those microbes come from? Well, they come from other bison. They come from the soil. They come from the plants. The whole world gets built up inside of the bison that's taken from the larger microbial world, which is basically, you know, for us, an invisible world, That gets internalized and adapted to the kinds of plants they're eating so that these huge creatures can digest something that for us is virtually undigestible. So they have this very specialized digestive system and through rumination and their four-chambered stomach, all of this, they can begin to digest grass. And the rumen really only develops once they begin to start digesting. And then it develops into this largest part of the stomach. So you have this lovely intertwined relation between the food that they live from and the bison as an active, you could say, cultivator of the grasses that they live from. That's the main aspect, I would say, of this interrelatedness 
where bison and prairie belong together. You would not have the prairie in that form without these large grazing animals and without fire, which we can maybe come back to later. So fire and large grazing animals are co-creators of the prairie, along with the larger climate, that it's not too wet and not too dry. If it was a lot wetter, you'd have trees, and if it was a lot drier, you would have not enough for them to eat. Every time I get to the life of a ruminant, and I realize what's going on in the rumen, as you said, there's a microcosm in the rumen. And that usually we're unaware of this and it's invisible. They're little creatures. There's billions of little creatures in that rumen. And this is an active element, again, as you said, of the intertwining and the intermingling. But now we have three aspects to the intermingling and almost the microorganisms as mediators between the grasses and the bison, but the microorganisms inside and outside the bison. And this picture gets fuller and fuller and not mind-boggling in that I can hold the concepts, but mind-boggling in what must be going on every second of a creature's life with all this activity. That is mind-boggling. Yeah, it is mind-boggling. And it's, again, it's like once you begin to look at the physiology, not just at the form of the animal, this morphology, its structure, its anatomy, but you look at the animal as a physiological creature, its ongoing activity. It's actively recreating itself all the time through the environment which it takes in, breaks down, and makes its own. There, you have to then begin to get the sense of the centered body of an animal as a living creature is itself always in flux. It's there's something always being newly created, something being excreted, something dying away, something coming into being. It's completely dynamic. This relationship is such that that activity of the organism is only possible in a particular kind of environment, or at least certain kinds of conditions make that possible. And the bison, in turn, is affecting those conditions. You go from that centered activity active physiological being of the bison that is woven into the activity of the prairie that serves it and that it serves. Going back to your soul space, and I said this before, but I I need to say it to break my own habits, that there's nothing programmed in this to the degree that what a certain behavior is going to be is prescribed. Yeah, and you can say also just the character of a prairie. If there have been a lot of bison in an area for a while and lots of wallows, those wallows create depressions. If it happens to be a wet year, then those wallows can hold water. The soil is more compact. They can hold water. The frogs come and they lay their eggs. And if it stays even longer, then certain aquatic plants can start taking root there. So you get a little micro environment within the prairie. But if in the next year, it's a really dry year, then you might get some plants that are much more at home in dry environments taking root there. The seeds come somehow there, and then they germinate. So this flux that's there within the environment that is partially related to the bison and partially related to many other things, which seeds get brought in from somewhere else. What birds are flying there and what kind of nests they make, whether they make a nest out of bison hair, for example, or whether the bison carry the seeds stuck in their fur from this place to that place and happen to rub against that tree and they fall onto the ground and germinate there. All these things of just this incredible realm of interactions that we can kind of say retroactively, well, yeah, somehow this this, and this might have happened. But it's really interesting in all the unexpected things that you can discover. Yes, and the unexpected things, even in the details of the seeds and the fur. And that, I think, is one of the great gifts of your essay when I say I have this feeling of intimacy and a sense of the bison is so much bigger in my picturing of it and my sense of the bison is the bison also is 
an individual in a herd and a herd on a prairie and a prairie on an earth and an earth in a cosmos. And don't, let's not forget those little microorganisms in the brumen. This is the picture you're giving. And at each layer, they're all intermingling. I can focus on a particular layer, but they're all intermingling. You're talking about what the bison needs for its life physiologically that grass belongs to bison, right? Without it, it cannot exist in a healthy way. And so you have to extend your concept of the bison to the prairie, to those interactions. And of course, that shrinks so that you can feed bison hay in a zoo and they will survive. But when you have that picture, you realize also, well, something has clearly shrunk, right? That the bison... Its world is no longer the world that it has the potential for and that it can really truly thrive in. Craig, sometimes pithy quotes say it all, and you picked a pithy quote from John Muir that I'll read now to end our first conversation on your essay. When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And I think with our picture of the bison, just how far we've gotten, that sense becomes quite vivid and irrefutable. Today, it's very easy to say everything's interconnected with everything else. We can say that, and it's true. Where it gets really interesting is when you start looking, how is it with the bison? How is it with the wolf? How is it with the pronghorn? How is it with those little amoebas that are living in the rumen so that you get more specific because then it becomes something that speaks qualitatively like when you get to know another person well. Otherwise, it's a true statement. Everything is connected. And Muir could say that because he observed it in all these details. He wasn't just coming up with some kind of a nice statement of a transcendentalist or something, but he lived that. He had perceived it in all his wanderings through the Sierras and everywhere else where he went. So it's about making that concrete, and that's what I try to do to my best in this discussion of the extended bison. Yes, I appreciate the degree to which you pull off what you'd like to pull off. <laughs> Your portrayals are kind of nourishment. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. In our next conversation, we will hear Craig read from the second part of his essay that addresses the relationship between the members of the tribes of the Great Plains and the bison. We will be offering glimpses of another way of being in the world, a way that experiences the continuity between a being's physical and spiritual life. We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info at natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. You can become a subscriber and or download a PDF of all the back issues of In Context, our twice-yearly publication, along with many other books, essays, and podcasts on our webpage, natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.